Hi, everybody, and welcome to Sports Legends of the Carolinas. I'm your host, Scott Fowler, sports columnist for the Charlotte Observer, where I've worked since 1994. And after doing this for nearly 30 years, a lot of times I get the question, who are the people you've most enjoyed covering? This podcast answers that question, letting you get to know some of Carolina's sports legends the way I've gotten to know them, beyond the headlines and off the field. What a finish at Daytona, Dale Jr. on top of the car. For this episode, I'm sitting down with NASCAR legend Dale Earnhardt Jr. You probably know him as a third-generation driver, a TV broadcaster, a car owner, and as of just a few months ago, a member of the NASCAR Hall of Fame. He's also a husband, a father to two beautiful girls, the son of Dale Earnhardt Sr., and the person I'll always be grateful to for recommending way back in the early 2000s that I start watching a little-known TV show called The Office. In this episode, Dale Jr. talks about life with and without his legendary father, as well as becoming a dad and why he'd like to go back and slap his younger self. That's a side of Dale Earnhardt Jr. you'll only get here on Sports Legends of the Carolinas. So old stuff would pile up in this storage unit. We're throwing all kinds of stuff in the back of this dump truck. And so a buddy's down there and he grabs his trash bag, he looks in there, he's like, there's a uniform in here. You mean to throw this away? And I have a bunch of pictures of dad. I immediately grab my phone and I'm like, his very first win in 1979 at Bristol. And it's the uniform. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you're listening. And to continue supporting content like this, please consider a digital subscription to the Charlotte Observer. (laughs) Dale Jr., welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, Let's start with this, Dale. In January, you were inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame, and you called that at the time the greatest honor of my career uh, when we spoke the day before your induction. So you've done so many things in your life. I just wonder why that one was so significant to you. I think that getting into the Hall of Fame is like the the last big box you want to check or hope that you could check. It's also like a uh, a big affirmation moment, and I I don't I think I, I the Hall of Fame might mean different things to different people, particularly like athletes that are going into the Hall of Fame for whatever sport they played. It signified that I mattered and I feel like I'm in constant need of sort of this affirmation about throughout throughout my life you know in in every day of my life I need somebody to say um that was a good choice or you did a good job there so that was um you know I worked my whole career to have someone at the end of the day say you were uh, you were great to have around. We're glad you were here. We're glad we're glad that you were a part of this. <clears throat> and uh, that's kind of what that Hall of Fame induction does. It makes you feel appreciated. So I know I'm not the greatest race car driver to ever raced. I didn't get to be that. Um, I didn't get to be the one with the most accolades or best stat sheet or most accomplishments um but i wanted to matter and i wanted to i wanted to succeed and be good and i think that you know people say uh when you win the daytona 500 or anything a championship whatever they say well they can't take this away from you nobody can deny you 
and uh, it is a, it is it's only been a few months, and it's really weird to be introduced as a Hall of Famer. It's um, it's a strange uh, feeling when somebody says that. You're young for a Hall of Famer too. I mean, a lot of people that comes when they're 75 or something. And uh, I agree. Yeah. I, you know, I I've always um, loved the history of the sport and and looking at the names on the induction list. Um, I see I see a lot of names that belong in there, and uh, I always felt like I was happy to wait my turn. And uh, that's maybe the only thing about it that feels an, a bit unfortunate, I guess, is that um, I did get put into the Hall of Fame before Larry Phillips, who I know would have drove circles around me, um, or uh, Sam Ard, right? Um, s- some of the other names. I mean, every name. You look at that. You look at every time the ballot comes up and everybody that's mentioned is 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 a hall of famer they are and just will they get chose this time around um and so it's a it's going to be fun i guess going forward trying to influence who goes in and you know if you have any influence um that voting process will matter more to me now than it ever did i was a historian and loved to debate and and get excited about who was chosen It'll matter more now than ever because of being a member. I know you feel so strongly about NASCAR history, and that it's uh, it's cool. I, I think you've read you've written before that you know sometimes you're the guy who is engaged in a late night bidding war on eBay for some random piece of merchandise. I, what are some of the of the things you have uh, in your possession or in your collection that matter the most to you? I've been lucky to come across a couple. Um, autograph books that were accumulated by an individual uh, that I don't know. So there's these, I got two of them where it's a, it's just a small old notebook that has autographs in it from drivers of many different disciplines, but from the fifties and the sixties and the seventies, it's got, I've got an autograph book with probably 80 names in it. And one of them is Ralph Earnhardt's. Well, a possible winner is Ralph Earnhardt. Ralph, it looks as though they found something wrong with Yardrow's car. Is that right? Well, it's not Eli Willow. Let's see. History being made today. The first ever third-generation driver to become a NASCAR Series champion. To me, being able to possess an autograph of an individual who's deceased, who can no longer provide you with such a you know unique piece of merchandise, is... Uh, is something that I think is really cool. So those are those are a couple items that that I like. Uh, Dad's uniforms. I'll tell you a cool story. I get a lot of stuff handed to me over the years, especially back in the mid two thousands during the peak of our popularity. Mm-hmm. Everywhere we went, somebody was handing you something, right, and saying you might want this or you might need to hang on to this. Um, it might be a picture that you've seen a thousand times, that you've signed a thousand times. It might be something so insignificant. Most of the items are um, something that you either already have or, or you know, it's a, it's a die cast of your dad's or something that you've got multiples. Yeah. 
of. But this person believes in their heart that this is something that will mean something to you. And, and so you, you, you know, you get all these things accumulating all these things. And I had a, I had a storage unit on my property, not a, not a typical storage unit you see on the side of the road, but I had like this storage building and, and I would just, you know, when I would get things given to me, handed to me, sent to me, mailed to me, a lot of those things might end up in this storage unit. Uh, along with all of my junk, you know, I, I was, I'm big into computer gaming. And so everything from six months ago is obsolete and you're always upgrading and monitors and hardware and all that stuff. And so old stuff would pile up in the storage unit. One day where I decided with a few friends to clean this thing out. So I'm cleaning out this storage unit and we're throwing all kinds of stuff in the back of this dump truck. The storage unit's on a second floor, and the dump truck's backed up to two double doors downstairs. So we're just throwing stuff off into this dump truck from ab- from above. And I grabbed this trash bag, black trash bag, and I just threw it. Didn't think anything about it. A buddy of mine's, uh, the, the stuff's piling up and starting to slide off the, the side of the dump truck. And so a buddy's down there straightening up our mess. And he grabs the trash bag, he looks in there, he's like, there's a uniform in here. You mean to throw this away? I was like, uniform? What, what kind of uniform is in there? I'm thinking, what what uniform of mine have I tossed away? He pulled it out, and it was a yellow uniform with blue stripes, old, had old patches. So I immediately recognized it. It was one of Dad's uniforms from either 1979 or 80. Wow. And I have a bunch of pictures of Dad from that year or those two years, his rookie year and his first cup championship in, in, in uh, the NASCAR series. So – I immediately grab my phone and I'm like, I looked at his his very first win in 1979 at Bristol, and it's the uniform. Whoa, really? Huh? Was that Wrangler or was that nope. what was blue and yellow? He what? was. Uh, it was. He didn't have a sponsor. It was Austrian car, and they hit, Mike Curb ended up coming along, getting on the side of the car at one point. But but this this was like the fifth, sixth race of the year at Bristol, his rookie year. No sponsor on the car. And it was just a blue, it was a yellow uniform, blue stripes, and the patches all are where they're supposed to be. He had a he had two or three uniforms that year, and the patches were all in different places. So it's like obvious like which uniform was which. And so it's funny because he this was his uniform that he won his first race in. And in the off season. He wore that uniform in in 1979 and in 1980. He wore the same uniform. He had two or three, and he wore he wore them both years. After 1980, he's going to get new uniforms, and he does. So, on the new uniforms in 1980, they had this blue sort of V Western style pattern that came down off the off the shoulder. And on this rookie of the year, 1979-1980 uniform, they drew with ink pen some of the ideas of how they might change the uniform for the next year. And so there's some ink pen marks on the shoulders. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Of how the eventually wow. eventually they made the uniform. So somebody has that thing, and they're like, you know what we ought to do is maybe <laughs> make this blue right here. And, and uh <clears throat> So that's sort of you can barely see where they were they were sort of drafting on this on this uniform. Yeah, and I don't know where I don't know why Dad didn't have it. Why he do, why it's not somewhere where his possessions are. I don't know what route it took to get to me. I have no idea. I do not remember anybody giving it to me or how it ended up in that storage unit. 
but that is absolutely one of my favorite pieces because of all of the things that had to happen for it to find its way back to me that I don't even know. Yeah, what a great, beautiful mystery. Yes. How that, how that actually happened. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. Junior and his dad right behind him following in his tire tracks. That's got to be quite an experience for dad to be watching his kid up in front. Remember that Daytona afternoon? And he just walked in and gave him a hug and immediately got out of victory lane. It was not Earnhardt Sr.'s victory lane, and he wasn't going to be part of Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s party. He just wanted to support him. You uh, mentioned your dad, and I know you said... He would say he was proud of me, but he would also say some other things. And I think one thing that you mentioned at that time was he would say, well, you didn't quite fulfill your potential as a driver, and, and I agree. And, and can you sort of explain that a little bit? <laughs> yeah. I um, I didn't realize the work ethic needed to to be as great as I could possibly be. And so I got partnered up with Budweiser, which had, <clears throat> had dad lived – he would have seen he would have probably encouraged me successfully to um be a, better at applying myself but when he passed away there were a lot of emotions that came with that one of the emotions which was um uncontrollable i felt guilty about it but it was uncontrollable i couldn't like I didn't get to choose how I felt when 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 something like that happens in your life you don't choose the emotions you're having they're happening and I had all the traditional ones that you might imagine um terrible terrible sadness and and you know just d- dark dark depression but I had a I had this odd odd strange feeling of being freed from some limitation or some bind some 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 sort of mental binding it was scary because now i was i was able to make my own choices in my life but dad was always a ceiling to protect me he was this sort of protective yeah, a wall sort layer. of. Yeah. yeah, and that was gone. And now I had this feeling of some sort of freedom that was very dangerous, you know, and scary. Like, where's my leader? Where's my leadership? It's My leadership's gone. You're about 26 years old, yeah. I think, when he passed away. Mm-hmm. And so that was, a, that was not much of a – it wasn't a blessing. Um, and it was, uh, it was really scary – very happy Tony Erie. Tony, what do you guys got in that race car that nobody else has? I think the the biggest deal is between the seat and the steering wheel, really. Tony Sr. Tony Jr. were great motivating forces in my life, Tony Sr. especially at that time. Dale Sr., he came to me and wanted to know, he said, you think you can make a race car driver out of Dale Jr.? And he said, well, if you think you can make a race car driver out of him, I'm going to put him in the bush car. So, you know, that was our goal. We took Dale Jr. to the racetrack and letting him learn how to drive and taking Tony Jr. to the racetrack and letting him learn to be a crew chief. But he wasn't my dad, and he wasn't going to be there every day. He wasn't going to be calling me at 9 o'clock saying, where are you at? He wasn't going to be going, you know, calling me at nine in the morning saying, are you up yet? 
Um, but when he was around or I was around him, by God, you were going to go by his rules. He was the man in charge. But um, the other times in the day when I was free to do whatever it is I wanted to do, I was doing it. I was doing whatever I wanted to do. I wasn't focusing on becoming a better race car driver. I wasn't going to the shop and asking how can we be faster or how can we do better. And so, I mean, the worst examples of me basically mailing, not mailing it in, but trying to get away with the minimum effort was around 2005 or four. 2006, walking into the garage when practice is starting. So I'd be in the bus playing video games and literally looking at my watch, going 10 minutes to practice, I can play a few more minutes. Five minutes to practice, I can play a few more minutes. And then two minutes to practice and running into the garage and guys are pull, guys are in their cars, strapped in, cranking them up, pulling out of the garage to go out on pit road and line up and wait for the track to be green. And I'm walking up to the car mm. with my uniform tied around my waist, you know, like, <laughs> hey, I'm here. And contrast that with when I went to work with Latart and he said, you're going to be at the truck an hour before practice starts or 30 minutes before practice starts every week. No questions. Don't descend debatable. It's not negotiable. That's what, that's when you're going to be here. And I was. And, um, so when I went to Hendrick, I learned, you know, I didn't have all, I didn't have this, um, you know, when I went to Hendrick, I didn't have like a burst of success or things turned around, but I did learn over time, like, wow, this is how you prepare. I was not trying this hard. You know, when I went to Hendrick, we tried hard to fix it. We tried hard to get back to Victory Lane. Eventually, during the years with Steve and, and even, you know, before that with with Lance and then with Greg Ives, the effort that I was putting in during that period of time in my career was, was way more than what I was doing when I drove the Red 8. And you still won some. In the I know. Red, you know? I oh, guess yeah. it's just it's the talent and the car. Well, I, you could you could get away with. I this. could get away with it yeah. being young, and we had great cars. And I think that there aren't but a couple people, I'm sure, that are going to get to the end of their career and look back and not think, "Man, I could have done so many things better or different or tried this or that." Um, and I'm just honest about it. I feel like. I did do some great things. I did more than I expected to do in terms of success and winning. But, yeah, when I got to the end of it, after learning what I learned by going to Hendrick and understanding what the winning ways were and the, the, the Hendrick way, I thought, dang, you know, I wonder, man, how many more races I might have won had I really been locked in, locked sort of, in eat, right. sleep, drink, racing. Now, it wouldn't have been as fun. But <laughs> right. I would have probably won somewhere anywhere between twenty five to seventy five percent more races, maybe. Oh geez. So yeah. instead of twenty six you think you could have maybe thirty five, forty races. Okay. For sure. I mean we had the cars and the the ability to go out there and make that happen and I mean you know, I got the when in uh at the we had six wins in oh four, great season. And went to Homestead. We were we had had something happen a couple of weeks before that cost us some points, and boy, we were pissed. We were all hot and upset, and maybe I think 
Tony Senior and Tony Junior were a little annoyed with me. Just we all see saw this like great season and this real opportunity. I think they saw the opportunity to win the championship clearer than I did. I saw, man, I had a great year. Yeah, what's the be? You know, and they're like, no, we should have won the championship. And damn it, you know, you had you got to understand where you could have applied yourself a little better and maybe made a bit of a difference. And But anyways, we were kind of all annoyed with what was happening to us and also each other. And at Homestead, me and Tony Jr. were in the middle of practice and just quit talking to each other. <laughs> we just we just agreed. We just both just were so annoyed that the car wasn't handling that great and driving that good. And it was like we both just – give each other the cold shoulder. And uh, I left Homestead thinking I needed a change. I would, If I could talk to that version of myself, I would slap the shit out of me. I would. Mm. I would I'm, I'm so angry with that pers- that decision and being what I, how I influenced that choice to split from Tony Sr. Uh, and that was a bad, bad choice. And I thought in my mind I was making a, I thought in my mind that I was going to be better off with someone else. That man, I bet you there's, I bet you somebody else can give me better cars. And boy, I was wrong. Hmm. And it's that decision had an effect on Tony Jr. and Tony Sr.'s lives going forward for years and my life, my career. You split with them right after a four. Oh, season. four, yeah. Mm-hmm. The end of February or first of March. It was a long time before he ever made it. He came to me and told me he was not going to resign. And so Tony Junior goes to the Tony Senior is no longer a crew chief. He goes into sort of some more ma- kind of a manager style role. But uh, Tony Junior is now Michael's crew chief. I had a couple of different people crew chief in my car that year. It didn't really work out. And time has run out on Tony Yuri Jr.'s attempts to get his driver to victory lane and into chase contention. Yuri Jr. is out as Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s crew chief. And we get to Talladega in the back half of the year, and I went over to Tony Jr. and I said, hey, I said, what do you say we get back together, man? This is not working for me. And he goes, yeah, I'm good with it. I was like, Thank God. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what the hell I was thinking. And let's get through the rest of this year and let's figure this out. How to, how to, I'll just come back to your car. And he's like, Dude, got it, no problem. So that's what we did. Well, you figured it out. It just took a while. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> we can go on, I can, we can go on and on down this rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Sports Legends of the Carolinas. You've just heard the first half of our conversation but there's much more to come. I think that's going to be one of my frustrations in my life going forward is trying to convince them of who I used to be. I don't think I'll ever be able to get it through their heads really? what 2004 was like for me. And <laughs> they'll, they'll probably never think that that was as big a deal as I do. <laughs> I dedicate this win to him. I mean, there ain't nobody else that I could dedicate it to. For that, please purchase a premium subscription to our show exclusively on Apple Podcasts. And for video of these interviews, visit charlotteobserver.com slash sportslegends. Here comes Dale Earnhardt Jr. He wins at Daytona. I'm Scott Fowler, and this is Sports Legends of the Carolinas. This show is produced by Jeff Siner and Kata Stevens, and the director of audio at McClatchy is Davin Coburn.
For lots more content and to continue supporting this kind of work, please visit charlotteobserver.com slash sportslegends and consider a digital subscription. Connect with me on Twitter at Scott underscore Fowler or by email at sfowler at charlotteobserver.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please share with a friend. See you next week.